0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars Out here we are stoned, immaculate Hello and welcome, this is the C86 show I'm David Eastorf. as you know we love a special guest This week it's going to be the turn of the engineer-producer It's the one and only John Capri Who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry And his life in music um, He was born in the UK but has spent most of his time in Europe and especially Germany working with um, a lot of reggae people during the early 80s, also Joy Division was closer, and then has gone around Europe, working with lots of amazing German bands, which you'll find out about in this interview, so I'm not going to try and um, mispronounce them all. So we're just going to get down to that exciting subject that was those early formative years. John, it's over to you
1: when I was, I'm. let me think, I'm I'm 59, so I'm a couple, couple of years older than you. Um, when my sister, when my oldest sister met her, um, the man that became her wife, they're, they're recently divorced. But he um, he introduced me to music, basically. And funnily enough, I was listening to a lot of German kraut rock at that time. Right. It was when I was about 11 years old or so. And um, bands like Noy, Noi, Love Dusseldorf, Can, etc. And he was, um, I think he was about 18 or 19. And he was uh, really into like recording and building his own amplifiers and fuzz boxes and stuff. And he had a four track tape recorder. And when I saw that, I knew what I wanted to do and I grew up. <laughs>
0: Yes. My God, that was from the age of ten or eleven that you you started to immerse yourself in this quite um avant garde music.
1: Yeah, and I used to spend like every holiday they were uh at university in York. I always used to like any chance I got, I used to go up and stay with him. Yes. And, and, and we all all my time fiddling in the studio.
0: Amazing. Did you um were your parents at all musical? Did they have any kind of kind of collection or sometimes people go, oh, my my, my dad was a, a trumpet player for the Salvation Army. Did you have any kind of musical moments like that?
1: No, um, I mean, my dad was always really, really into music. He listened to a lot of, I don't know, I remember listening to a lot of Glenn Miller and that sort of stuff. And he was also into the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and stuff like that.
0: Yes, well, classic, classic ones. So did you, yeah. where, where did you grow up, by the way? What, what sort of area was this?
1: In uh, in southern England, I went to boarding school in um, in a place called Southsea on the south coast. Right, blimey. And then um, spent you know most of my time in London, basically.
0: Yes. So, what was your first gig you went to at this this kind of stage? Cause oh,
1: you... traffic.
0: Trikey. <laughs> That was quite a good gig, wasn't it, really? Yes, blimey. Yeah. That was that was good. So when you got to sort of like the age of 16, which was probably about the late 70s, did you stay on then to do A-levels or did you leave at that stage?
1: No, I was really lucky. My parents had split up and my dad, uh, he'd, he'd left. And my mum was really, really cool and she really supported me with what I wanted to do. And I did my O-levels, and then I went back to do my A-levels. And after a couple of weeks, I said to my mum, this is completely pointless. I, n- I know I need what I want to do, and I don't need any A-levels to do it, because in those days, there was only one university course in Reading, the Tone course, which came from Germany. Um, and I said, you know, I'll just uh, I'll make some contacts and... I'll get on with it. And she was really cool. She came down and spoke to the school, and all the teachers said, "Let him go. He knows. You know, all he, all he cares about is music."
0: Right. So
1: I was really, really lucky. Otherwise, I would have probably had to go to university and become a doctor or
0: something. <laughs> <laughs> Drastic. So, yeah. did you when you were at school, boarding school? Did you were you into bands at that stage, or were you just fiddling with in the electronics course and physics? Well, I
1: mean, I, I played guitar and bass um I saw, at the same time like when i was 11 i started playing guitar and stuff and which i did like i played through school time and but then when i started working in studios i didn't have the time and i realized that there were so many people who were so much better than me <laughs> that i better concentrate on what uh, on working in studios
0: yes cuz i've done a kind of quite a few interviews with producers and it was all How was it? Mark, Mark... Oh, God. It um, begins with S. But I remember his kind of... He was in various kind of quirky little indie bands and then sort of got himself the break and then became sort of, you know, just the... I suppose, I don't know, it was a documentary, wasn't there, with Jimmy Iovine, who was kind of part of that Beats music eventually, but he he kind of was just the person sweeping up the studio floor and, and sort of hanging about a bit. So how did you manage to sort of become part of that kind of uh, environment and world? Oh, I,
1: the first, uh, I wrote loads of letters to studios, and the first place I wrote to was Connie Plank. In, are you familiar with him? No. He's one of the greatest german producer of, of all time he he died oh must be about 20 years ago or so but he did a lot of these bands like um Kraftwerk Neu!! Lotuslove um to let me think um i think he might have done the yeah, he did stuff with Robert Fripp and um uh you yeah, have to look him up he did some amazing bands
0: Yes, um,
1: but he was a real pioneer in um, in like electronic music. Um, I just I just couldn't have a look and see if <laughs> I can find any other stuff.
0: So were you right? You you were sort of not focused on the UK at this stage. You were already looking at Europe.
1: Well, I, I mean, he produced a lot of records, which were among my favourites and um but he didn't reply (laughs) i didn't hear anything from him like all the studios nobody wrote back Um, and then i picked one studio in um in london in soho which is called gooseberry studios and i started phoning there like once a month and then once a week and then every single day and i got to know the owner's wife really well on the telephone And uh, I guess this went on for a few months. And then I thought, I'm just going to go down there. And I turned up and the owner, Peter, was there. And he was in a complete panic because Sasha, his wife, had just been taken into hospital with a pregnancy in her fallopian tube. Yes. And he he, he vaguely knew who I was. And he said, OK, stay here, Uh, answer the phone, write down the names, the telephone numbers of anyone that calls up. I'll be back later. Right. And he came back a few hours later from the hospital and um, he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, "Uh, trying to get a job at a studio and he said, we'll come back tomorrow morning at 10. And I was basically, I was in. (laughs) And um, because I had quite a lot of uh, knowledge from my experiments with, with my brother-in-law um, I had a lot of basic knowledge which people wouldn't have normally at that age and I did three months of um, cleaning the toilets in the morning hoovering the studio, spending all day in the office and at eight I was allowed to go into the control room and, and help or watch or whatever Yes. And then, um, do you know Dennis Bovell? Yes. Well, he was one of the engineers there, and he did obviously did the reggae sessions, and they were often at night, so I used to spend... I mean, I I was paid uh, a pound a day, and with this pound, I had to decide whether I bought a packet of cigarettes, or took the bus home, but I I could only do two of them. (laughs) So I slept at the studio most of the time. And I mean Dennis was like well, my first mentor was Colin Potter, my brother in law. Um and then Dennis. He taught me so much. We used to work together the whole time. And then one day he didn't turn up for a session in the morning, he'd overslept and the band was there. It was a um it was a Nigerian outfit and um I'd worked on sessions with them, with Dennis. And after waiting for 20 minutes, I could reach Dennis. They said, oh, come on, you do it, John. And so I sat down and I got on with it. And the owner came down a couple of hours later and he went spare because Dennis wasn't there. But the producer, Aki Dean, he said, no, it's no problem. We We carry on working with John. It's great working with him, no problem. And then I was like in as an actual engineer. Right. And- um, because I was also working in the office, um, I took a lot of the bookings. So whenever anything interesting came in, I wrote my name down for the session.
0: <laughs> God, <laughs> and that's... that was
1: a great time. I was there for about I don't know two years, two and a half years, and worked with loads of punk bands. Um, and um, let me think, Gary Newman, right? our friends electric and the replicas album um with him plus all the linton quasi johnson albums and worked with the top reggae artists basically i mean people used to come from jamaica to record or mix at that studio so it was from iroy you name it i worked with him then
0: yes did you do the british kind of reggae scene like Aswad and Burning Spear and Misty. Yeah, I mean
1: I was used to work with the musicians from Aswad the whole time. Drummy, the, the drummer. Yeah. He was um he was one of the top session drummers at that time. Yes. And he also he played on that um Silly Games from Janet Kay. Yes. Um and that was uh one of Dennis's productions. Yes. And um well, it was a
0: glorious time for Root's reggae, wasn't it? because we sort of did amazing it, it was kind of the slime Robbie period, and there used to be this thing called they did called the taxi game where they would play for three hours and have different front front men basically and um I went to quite a lot of those, but also all that British stuff, but there was also Dennis Brown and Gregory Isaacs as well which which was a glorious period, really wasn't it?
1: Yes, yeah, and also um I worked with Adrian Sherwood then. Um, with uh, like with together with Prince Fry. right creation rebel um, so, do you know that album Starship Africa
0: I don't know that one but I remember Tackhead and Tackhead one of
1: my favourite um, dub albums of all time right because we got worth checking out.
0: It was Augustus Pablo, wasn't there? Meets Kim yeah, Rock. That's right. There was that yeah. one. Yeah, because it's interesting because I did an interview with those two producers. Is it Mick Thorne, who'd worked with Soft Cell, but before that I'd worked with Deep Purple? And then the other guy was Mark Saunders, who. And um, they both had a really similar experience of working in studios like you did, who had just being really fixated and having to kind of literally sort of hang about brushing up. And then one day, were told actually, could you just go and do that session because no one's here, and they just had to do it and that was it, so it's kind of that was the eighties way of doing it wasn't it
1: yeah I mean you know in a way you know the kids, the, the, the people go to to schools please private schools to learn engineering and stuff and I think in a way um the system was really good in those days because you didn't you got paid basically nothing and it, it really weeded out the people that wanted to do it, really wanted to do it, from those that thought, "Oh, that'd be a cool, glamorous job." Yes. Um, and you know, I I work with like young engineers today, and they've been to these schools and stuff, and they've paid so much money, and basically, they haven't really learned very much.
0: Yeah. So that was the, that must have been. So you you worked with people like Adrian Sherwood at that stage and Dion on New Sound System. God, that's amazing. Yeah. So, how long did yeah. you? How long were you at Gooseberry Studios?
1: I think it was about two years, and then I, I had my first burnout. Well, my only burnout. Um, I, I, I was seventeen when I started there, and um, by the time I was nineteen, twenty, I was absolutely finished. And I took like three three month break because I was working like seven days a week, at least you know fifteen hours a day. Yes. And then I got in touch with Britannia Row, uh, which was Pink Floyd Studios. Yes. They were also one of my favourite bands when I was a teenager. And um, then it was really funny. I spoke to the studio manager and he asked me what I'd been doing. And I told him that was the, you know, the Gary Newman stuff and um, Linton Quasi Johnson. Um, Base culture was his favourite album at the time, and he said, "Yeah, come down." So I went down to Britannia Road and um, got the job straight away.
0: God, so so was this kind of now about sort of 1981, 82? Yeah, God. yeah. So were you? I mean, were you still sort of on that dance scene, or had you sort of moved over to another any other sort of? Um, I was just thinking of that post-punk time of the sort of early 80s.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's when I, um, I did uh, the first thing I did at Britannia Row was a uh, magazine, hmm. was Howard Devoto, and um, Martin Hannett was the producer.
0: Right. And... Um, and- was Martin still together there? Because I did an interview with a guy from Wasted Youth the other day, which was a band, and he said Martin just was um, just laying on the floor, a bit drunk. Point, point. Well, he it
1: is, it is more, was more, more than drunk. Um, Wasted Youth I also worked with, and that was probably around the same time. Right. Um, with, Rocco but,
0: um, with Rocco and Ken. I don't know. With Rocco and Ken. Yes,
1: yeah. And... Uh, it's really funny so many bands come back to my mind now we're talking about this Um, so I did the the magazine album and then Was John John
0: McGill in the band at that stage? Yes God what was it like working with John?
1: Well I mean it was just mixing the album Right so um, they'd recorded it um, in I don't know in a warehouse with a mobile or something the album Um, but uh, they were I mean Howard DeVoto was a really really nice guy he lived around I found out he lived around the corner from me in Notting Hill um, at the time and um, that was and then the next thing we did was um, Joy Division a few weeks later basically recording um, and mixing Closer
0: Blimey what's that um, what was your memories what were your memories of that Experience
1: great, it was a really, really great time. Um, I mean, the um, Ian was uh, basically pretty quiet but very funny and stuff, and he was a little bit different to the rest of them. The rest of them were you know, they were just like lads every spare minute, they were going down to the pub and and stuff, yes, but it was um, really. Uh, interesting working with them. And it was, in a way, it was quite groundbreaking that album we so made. Mate. um And the studio, um, Pratani Row, they had this next to the recording room and control room. There was this massive um, room. I guess the, the ceiling height was probably about I don't know, 20 meters or something, a huge room there was a full-size uh, uh, snooker table in there which was looked minute in the room. And I started using that room as like a reverb chamber um, by putting a, a speaker in one corner and miking up the room. And that's got a lot of the sounds on that album that makes it so special, was from sending the stuff out into this huge room
0: Yes, it sounds a bit like oh, no. the, the experience they had in Berlin with Hansel, kind of kind of a large space yeah. with Tony Visconti and David Bowie and Brian Eno. So, yeah. yes, because there is a density to that album, isn't there? Mm. Which was quite something. So, did you? Yeah. W- so, you were there engineering it? So, with Martin and um, was it Michael Johnson as well? Was was the assistant? Yeah,
1: Michael was my assistant.
0: Right, he was, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yes, so, so what was, um, it must have sorry. felt quite amazing seeing the tracks coming together and the songs being put put together in a mix.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, what was great was they were so open-minded and um, Bernie, he, we had the same, like, musical taste, we'd been listening to the same uh, records when we were teenagers, as it was the same with Gary Newman, um, he was also listening to all the Kraut Rock that I was listening to. So there was like an immediate understanding with, with Gary and um, with Joy Division.
0: Yes. And did um, when, when they sort of were doing it, had, they, had all the songs been well sort of rehearsed and demoed at that stage, and they were just having to try and get the sound, or were they doing much work kind of changing things around?
1: Uh, for the musical arrangements, everything was uh fixed when they got to the studio they were you know they were well prepared. I don't know whether they'd actually made demos, but not everyone used to make demos in those days.
0: No. from the rehearsal room into the studio yes was, there any... was well, one of the big differences
1: between Gooseberry and Brit Row was that gooseberry um the studio was running twenty four hours a day, and you might have three or four different um artists coming in within those twenty four hours. So you'd be jumping from doing, I don't know, a Eurovision song context to some heavy punk band to lovers rock all in one day. And you had to you had to work really, really fast because the um the people didn't have like huge budgets that were working in that studio. And it was really, really good experience. Yes. And uh, and all like through my career, I haven't like fixed myself into one uh, particular style of music.
0: Yes, well, absolutely. But did that kind of was that experience with Joy Division doing Closer? Was that quite um, was that draining? Did you by the end of it, you know, because of the density and the kind of lyrical? Was it just like just another session and thinking, yeah, that was good? I just wonder how you felt by the end of it because as a listener, it's like it's quite a colossal piece of work, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I've I've always found that um, when I'm working on particular albums, you know at the time when you're doing it that you're doing something really special. And so it was like that with George Wilson. And it's also like the atmosphere that you have in the studio with the people. Um, You get to know people really, really well in a very short space of time when you record with them.
0: Yes, I would imagine, seeing the dynamics. Yeah. I, I guess you saw that Beatles film, the eight-hour film, where they're sort of trying to uh, record the last album together, that kind of process of um, the dynamics. The dy- dynamics must have felt really interesting, seeing the three of them being a bit laddish, and then Ian on his own.
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was he had a few um, heavy epile- epileptic fits when we were making the album, I think one day he fell down uh, a flight of staircases and, and um, it was such a shock. I, I don't know, how long was it? Something like three three months or something after we finished the album and I was listening to the John Peel show one night and then they announced that he was dead. It was really, really weird.
0: Yes, it's the weirdest one. In Yes, you never get used to it, but the first time when you're young, and you know, the first time you know someone You've known someone who's who's died, especially in those circumstances. It's um, it's surreal, really. I don't know what other word to use. It just is bizarre. Yes, it's uh, hard for the brain to compute. So after Joy Division, what then? Well, that must have been like God, oh, a bit of a high point, wasn't it? Only forty-three years ago. Gee, that's weird. Yes. Yeah. So what was what was your next kind of project on in Britannia Row?
1: Um. Well, I did several. I did several bands for for Factory. Um, um, section twenty-five. I don't know. If you oh yes, yeah. And and but then, like the music scene started changing, um, and uh, like the new romantic thing started getting popular.
0: The Blitz Kids.
1: Yeah, Spandau Ballet and
0: Sade, Duran Duran.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't my my cup of tea at all.
0: Yes, and also there I was that. What's... That Trevor Sorry. Horn production, the Trevor Horn production sound, started to become quite vogue, didn't it? Really?
1: Yeah, that was a few. That was, a, I think, that was a couple of years later. Yeah. Um, but I thought, I, I wonder what's going on in Germany these days. And and then a couple of weeks later, there was an advert in the back of the Melody Maker. For I'd I'd started. Um, I mean. Before I even started working in the studios, um, I made myself a plan for my career. And um, I I wanted to start working in studios as soon as possible. And by the time, in my early 20s, having some hits and stuff, and by mid-20s, start producing. And it all went uh, to plan, but... uh, um, it went quicker than I expected, and stuff. Right. And um, so I it was the studio in Frankfurt that advertised. They wanted a house producer for the studio, so I got in touch with them, had an interview, and about two months later moved to Frankfurt, and um, worked in the studio there. And the guy, the owner of the studio, told me that it was. Um, at like the forefront of Neue Deutsche Welle. Um but in actual fact I think I only worked with one German band when I was while I was at the studio. Um, all the rest of the stuff was bands coming from America. Right. What and studio what studio was that? It was called Hotline Studios.
0: Hotline. You yeah. Know. Yeah. It sounds like a John Major thing. Um Hotline. Yeah. So, who did you uh, work with in from the uh, from the Americans? God, why were you going to go? Why was one going to go from America to Germany to do a recording session? Uh,
1: because the the owner of the studio, he was um, he used to spend half his time in Los Angeles and the other half his time in in Frankfurt. And he had a production company and he signed people and they had to come and record in uh, his studio in Germany. But I got, uh, after a year, I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm wasting my time here. Yes. So I checked out a few studios in Germany and wrote to um, Dirk's Studios, which is near Cologne. And uh, that was owned by a guy called, or still is, by a guy called Dieter Dirk's. And his uh, one of his main claims to fame is uh, he did the Scorpions. Oh, Yes. And, but he did them right from the beginning, like their first records and stuff, and he wrote a lot of the songs in the beginning and stuff. And he had this really nice studio complex with three studios. And so I got in touch with them, and then a couple of weeks later they said, oh, we've got a session for you. It was like a long weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, with a band called Abwarts from um, Hamburg, which was sort of German, uh, was... Yeah, I guess they call it punk rock. Right. It was, it was, um, uh well, I went, I went up to and spent the weekend there, and we didn't actually record anything because the drummer spent the whole weekend, uh, tuning his drum kit. And, but I had a really good time, really nice weekend with them, and then they said, um, come up to Hamburg and we'll finish this record up there. And two of the members of for, um one was Mark Chung and the other one was F.M. Einheit, um, who were also in and and know about them. Right. So I did this 12-inch 12, 12 with um, ABVARTS. And um, when I finished mixing it, I remember like right in the afternoon when I was finished with the last mix, I walked across Hamburg with Mufti to another studio called Halfenklank, which was directly at the harbour. And uh started making the first Neubauten album. Blimey. First studio album from Neubauten And which was a completely crazy timing and mean, that was one of the craziest recording sessions I ever did.
0: I would imagine. Yes. What were the band like at that stage?
1: Um well Blixer, um, have you had any contact with Blixie? Do
0: you know? Him? Yeah, I did an interview with him a couple of a year ago when they he had a new album. It was probably last year actually, and they were just looking to do a yeah. tour. So, so he, you've got an idea of what he's like. <laughs> but <laughs> he was he was very different now than he probably was in the early mid '80s, wasn't he?
1: Extremely difficult when I met him. Um, and I remember these the studio you went into the studio uh, from one street and it was built like on a i guess it was it was on a hill and you came in on like the top floor and from the um from the control room you had this most amazing view of the harbour and when you'd see like tankers being turned around as the sun comes up it was really spectacular that was really surreal yes and um But it had, I think, three or four different levels. And so we went down to find Blixer. And he was down in the basement. And in the basement, there was another cellar, um, a small cellar. And um, he was in there. There was water, like he was sitting on a bar stool with his uh, leather trousers and Wellington boots and codpiece. Um, and there was water. I guess it was yeah, a couple of feet deep or so. And he was sitting down there with his amplifier on another basketball playing guitar. Right. And um,
0: that was that was a bit of a health and safety, wasn't it? Really.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was. And then yeah, the we worked for about a month. And I mean, we used to work for. I don't know. Sometimes thirty-six hours we used, used to work right. through, and you'd be just so, like so spaced out. And after a while, the communication from the bands like nobody was really talking to anyone. They were all in different parts of the building, building, building these um, these these instruments out of whatever um, rubbish or. Um, scrap metal, etc. And I used to walk around and have a listen to what they were doing and mic them up and then go up to the control room and think, well, this would fit well on such and such a song. And sometimes I recorded them without them knowing that they were being recorded. Um, And basically that was how most of the album was made. It was like... um, Accidental or random. Yes. It was, um like I say, it was one of the craziest times ever.
0: Which album was that?
1: The uh, OT.
0: Right, i got you, the one yeah. in 83. That was on some, some bizarre records, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was it. My God, that was that was kind of experience. Yeah. So then, oh, that was that was Blixer. And what was Alex like? Is it um, on percussion?
1: Which is great. I mean, Alex is, is such a lovely person. I mean, they were all really, really nice. Uh, Andrew Unruh. He's 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 unique. The guy, Let's put it like that. I mean, I don't think that for the first three weeks he didn't turn up to the, the first session that we did and um but the first time i met alex was when i was doing the uparts uh 12 inch before and i was recording bass with mark and alex came in and he heard that mark was playing bass and he ran out into the the uh the recording room and started messing around with the Mark's amp and the sound and stuff and I said to, to Mufti FMI, I said, Who's this guy? What the fuck's he doing? <laughs> and um and it was Alex and he made this most amazing bass sound.
0: God, and
1: a... I've I've always loved working with Alex.
0: Yes. My God. Yeah. What what track was that on?
1: Oh, uh, that was on um Holiday in Holiday in Beirut.
0: God i have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah, God. So as the 80s were progressing, because, you know, was was much changing sort of on... on I mean, a lot of things were changing in, in the studio by then, wasn't it? Let's face it. I just wondered how well,
1: that... I mean, we, we still weren't really working with... Um, it was still all, all tape-based in those days. Um, but the studios had more equipment than... Uh, I mean, when, when I worked at Gooseberry, it was... Um, really really basic we had like four compressor limiters um which also had noise gates in them um an eventide harmonizer spring reverb and uh two track tape machines for tape delay right um and then i moved to britannia row and that was completely the other extreme because they had a studio hire department where they rented gear out to all the other studios in London and there were rooms just full of equipment um, and, you know, you never ran out of gear they could always go up and get some more channels for the desk or another tape machine or whatever and that was a real luxury
0: <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine, yes, there you go so then as the, the 80s progressed and you'd had your experience with Blixer, what, hap- what? Where? where do you then sort of go for the next moment?
1: Well, then, while I was working with Neuerbaum, we, we did this, the, like, the months, the first month, and then I left, somebody picked me up um, from the studio and took me up to a place in North Germany to a, um, a place called Freisenhagen, and to work with a band called Tonsteiner Scherben, who were one of the biggest um, bands in the, in the late 70s, early 80s in Germany. And they came from the like the the left wing alternative scene in Berlin. They were like what, some of the first squatters in Berlin. <clears throat> and they moved out to um, this place, Freienhagen. They bought a farm, and basically it was uh, it was a bit like a, a commune. And they all lived together and ate together and stuff. And um, Rio Rides the Singer. He's got a really. Um, his reputation for lyric writing was really high. And in Germany, the lyrics are so much more important than they are in England. Yeah. Um, it's the most important thing for Germans when they listen to German music is the, the lyrics more than the music, basically. Yes. And I mean, that was something I had to learn moving from England was that you had to make the vocal in Germany much, much louder than it ever was in England. In England, it was, it was like part of the music, the vocal, you know. And, um, but over here, it was like, well, it's got to really stick out and they want to, I mean, it's not that, it's not a very easy language to sing and, um, you have to get it over as clear as possible. Otherwise, um, you know, they couldn't understand it.
0: Yeah, I could imagine. Then, yes. So what was that experience like? Were you working on an album with them?
1: Yeah, um, we did an album on um, uh, we recorded it up on uh, up there on the farm. Yes. And they were really good. Um, Blixer was a massive fan. I mean, Tornstein and Sherbin was his favorite band, basically. And that's how I got in touch with them, because uh, they told Sherbin that they were working with me and um, that it was really good and stuff. And that's how I ended up working with Tornstein and Sherbin. And I... I mean, I think I was up there for six weeks recording the album, and then um, somebody drove me uh, when we were finished recording, drove me back to Hamburg to the studio with Neubauten, and I went and did something like another month with them. And um, I mean, there were quite a lot of stimulants to keep you going, if you, if you know what I mean. Yes,
0: well, and I we would imagine. Were just
1: working crazy hours. And as soon as that was f- finished, I was picked up again by Ton Stein, and Sherman, and we drove down to South Germany to a place called Hillportstein to mix their album there. And so I'd been working for, I don't know, weeks and months solidly every single day. And by the time I, I was through with that, I was completely finished.
0: Um, I would imagine, because I, I, quite a lot of bands often talk about working with, I think it's a guy called Hugh Jones, and they just said he was extraordinary because he just didn't eat, but he just smoke and drink and just work until the project yeah. was finished. Did, did you have a slightly similar ethos of your own career at this stage? Yes,
1: yeah. yeah. It was, uh, I mean, there was nothing, It was the the main thing in my life was, it was the best thing for me to do was, like, doing music and stuff. And, you know, when you're in your early 20s, you don't worry about uh, your health that
0: much. No. Personal hygiene goes out the window, doesn't it? didn't. You never spelt um, deodorant at Glastonbury in the 80s, I tell you. No. (laughs) no. (laughs) So, yeah. But you were just, so, so you were sort of like somebody just kind of like, this is the you know, John's the man. Pick him up, take him to the studio, he'll just he'll just do it.
1: Yep. Yeah. Oh my God. And um there was another uh connection like with my next uh, the next thing I did was a band called Detotenhosen.
0: Oh yes. No, this is and this is what the
1: Jochen Hulda, the manager from the Hosen, had been managing Neuerbauten, but they just fired him. But he heard about me as well, and I was—I think I was back in London then, and um, he called me up and asked me if I'd come and see his new band, Die Totenhausen. So I went over to Berlin, and I think that was the first time I met Mark Reeder.
0: Right, good old Mark.
1: And um, I, I saw them play and they were absolutely terrible. They couldn't they couldn't play at all. I'd never seen a band so bad, basically, with their instruments and stuff. But the singer Campino, it was like, he had so much charisma on stage, it was like really obvious that the guy is a star and stuff. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a go working with them and stuff, and then made their first uh, studio album. Um, and I think all in all, I did 18 or 19 albums with them over the years.
0: My God, that's 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 longer than most people's marriages. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. God, you must have grown to love that band. I mean, because cause that, well, that guy I mentioned, Mark, Saunders, who'd been, you know, he'd done, you know, the UK, worked with lots of people, including Tricky, which was really difficult at times. Went to America, worked with Cyndi Lauper. That was very difficult as well. But then he, he's like, you know, he's, he's kind of knackered now. But he said that occasionally a band would sort of give him lots of ideas and almost expect him to, you know, sprinkle the fairy dust on it and say, give us a hit. And he just goes, no, you're going to have to come back with more of an idea. Did you ever have that experience of thinking... I'm not. I'm not the band. You know, you're the band who needs to bring the ideas. I, I, I can make it sound good, but I can't actually create the sound for you or put the arrangements together.
1: Um, no, I mean, I, I, I did. Um, I've always. Um, it's after I started producing and stuff, um, it was the process became. Uh, they'd send me um, recordings from the rehearsal room that they'd made on like on cassette or something and then um I go into the rehearsal room with them and work on the arrangements and then demo the uh the songs like with the hosen. We always I mean on every album recording session we'd record about thirty songs or something. But it would start off with um uh the the demo sessions, and I receive something like forty songs or so from the um, from the rehearsal room, and then go into the rehearsal room, work on the on the arrangements and stuff, and then go into a studio and record all forty songs in one day, basically, with all the the possible overdubs that could go on it. Um, and the quality of like the playing, uh, the performance, wasn't important at all. It was just a question of
0: documenting the songs with the arrangements. Yes.
1: And um, then they'd go back into um, the rehearsal room, drop maybe 10 or 15 of the songs, but there'd be another eight, which they would have written in that time. And sometimes we did, like, three demo sessions. So possibly all in all re- recording maybe 60 songs or something, in um, demoing 60 songs before uh, before um, whittling down the, the, the songs which go, go on the album.
0: Yes. God damn. What was the last album you worked um, on with them?
1: It was the MTV Unplugged in the um, in the Board Theater Theater in um, Vienna,
0: and that was it. There you go. Did you? um, They have gone on to do other albums since then, haven't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, they um, they've changed uh, their direction quite a lot since um, we stopped working together, and they became much more mainstream um i mean we had um, let me think the first i think the first album we did sold about 30,000 within the first couple of years the second album was the same the third album sold less and then the fourth album was um uh it was like cover versions from 60 50 60 german pop songs basically but played uh, with a punk rock attitude. Yes. And it didn't it went out under the name um uh, De Roten Rosen instead of De Toltenholzen. And um the album was called Nevermind the Holzen, here's De Rotten Rosen. Um sort of taken from Nevermind the Bollocks. And the artwork was um Exactly the same as the, the Pistols album, yes, and that jumped to a hundred thousand sales, and then we did a live album, and that did two hundred and fifty thousand and then one of the best albums that we ever made um was a Klein Bisschen horror show, which was you know is a sort it became a concept album um they were asked to to do music for the Clockwork Orange, which was being put on in the theatre in Bonn. And um, they were sort of acting in the in the play. Um, but also the, the, um, the stage opened up and they played four songs live. Um, and that was, I think, Here Comes Alex was the first top ten single that they had. And then the next album, um, let me think. Jump to, I think the next album sold a million or so.
0: Crikey, what year was that? What was that?
1: That album is called um, "Opium for the Folk."
0: Right. So that was. I mean,
1: if you want, I can I can send you some um, some links to some of these songs.
0: Yes. um,
1: I've done over the over the years from different directions and stuff.
0: God, that would be amazing. Yeah, because I was just looking, actually. Yeah, that was good. I think they caught a bit of a subtraction sort of in the sort of the 90s pop period as well, didn't they? they did John Peel pick them up as well at this stage?
1: I mean, John Peel was in, into them right from the beginning. I think um, they did, they'd done a John Peel session before I even started working with them.
0: yeah. Good old John. I know, he he had a real fondness. I think, oh yeah, because Mark told me that uh, he'd, pick, he'd sort of hung out with John while well, John came and stayed with him and they did a bit of a tour of Germany, Berlin and things like that. To uh, Right. They did a yeah. tube special, didn't they? Right, so there you go. So that's that was your, yeah. So you worked with them right into the 90s, didn't you?
1: Yes, I think it was like 2005 was the last album that I did with them. But it was, I mean, it was the right time to um to finish basically um because you get into i don't know after working together for such a long time, I mean to go into the studio and um I mean, I suggested a few years before to camp you know um the singer that we that we split because i I didn't get the. F- It all become a bit too too routine. You know what I mean. We go into the studio and we know that we come out of the studio and we'd have a top ten album. You know, and um, it all became more conservative, um, and basically the music didn't excite me anymore.
0: Yes, I think that's where David Bowie was always, could get quite, um, he had good time and didn't he, he could sort of change personnel and producers and studios, locations and um, yes, bring in different ideas, even when they didn't always work, at least it was slightly different, so Mm. you can't can't knock the man for his kind of ambition really, can you? Oh no, I mean,
1: absolutely (laughs) amazing. Yeah. Yes, just a bit. Yes, <laughs> yeah. just a bit. Yes. You, are you familiar with the band called XMAL Deutschland? Yes. Yeah, it was um, from also from Hamburg, and it was um, uh, all uh, all female group, and John Peel did quite a lot with them. And funnily enough, I did uh, last summer. Um, with uh, Anya Huvai, the the singer. She made her first album since the late 80s, early 90s. And you know Mona Moore, huh? Y-
0: yes, I've done an interview with her. She's got into doing soundtracks for games, hasn't she?
1: Yes, yeah. Well, I met, I met Mona in in 82 in Hamburg yes. when I was doing the first Neubau and stuff. She was actually the girlfriend of the singer from Abarth, from Frank. And she just made her first, um, I think it was a, maybe it was an album, but the single um, was um, Single of the Week in Melody Maker. Uh, Sorry, New Musical Express and stuff. Yeah. And when I heard her voice, I thought, wow, she's amazing. And I always wanted to work with her. Um, but we never got it together. We worked together on one album in the nineties, um, but she was there more. I think as an arranger, and she'd helped write some of the songs and stuff. And we lost touch, and um, and then she called me up this summer, and she said, "Hey John, I want to work with you." <laughs> and I said, "I don't believe it. I've wanted to work with you for years, now, <laughs> And it's one of the best things that's happened in the last ten years.
0: Excellent
1: meeting Mona again. I did, um, uh, I mastered and sort of did post production on her album, which came out in uh, last autumn. Yeah, and she recorded this album with Anya Uvai. Yeah, and as soon as I was finished with Mona's album, um, I did Anya's album, which is absolutely. I love it. It's one of the best things I've done for years, I would say.
0: Fantastic. Yes. Because um, I remember um, she mentioned that she'd done a, a session, I think it was in this studio in Cambridge, Space Ward Studios, with, I think, a member of the Stranglers. But this, I don't even know if the release came out, but I just remember her talking it's, about
1: It's come out recently. I think it came out last year.
0: Yeah, because she did some incredible work with, um, did a lot to do with her family stuff, wasn't there? And um Germany during the '40s. I, I don't know. I remember her kind of story was quite kind of boggling, really. So, um, yeah. Well, so was this about an album called Snake Island that you did?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Right. I got you. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it
1: was. Um, she worked together. She made the album. She worked with a, um, a guy called um, Ralph Goldkind. Um who was also a really really old friend of mine. I also met him in that uh, the same time as mourner in the early eighties with Neubauten um i mean i think he 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 played um trombone right and i think i probably did about five albums with Neubauten over the years and he always he was always invited to the the recording session and he played like trombone on nearly everything we recorded, but in the end, it, it was never used. It became like a running joke <laughs> when Ralph came, came down. But yeah, so he's remained a dear friend for, for years and years and years. And he worked with Mourner on this um, on Snake Island and stuff. And they'd mixed the album, but what, they weren't 100% happy with it, so they sent me um, the stems of the mixes and I sort of remixed them, remixed the album with the stems and stuff. And I loved it. Mona loved it, Ralph loved it. And I'm, well, Mona and I are planning to do a lot more work together in uh, in the near future. She's got, um, she's been asked to do the music for a film for Werner Herzog's son, Rudolf Herzog. Right. That's one of the the projects uh, for this year. And doing more more Mona stuff.
0: Oh, that's fantastic, because I know she was kind of busy. Did you ever come across in your travels, you know, Gary Asquith from Renegade Samway? Because he he was kind of... I don't know, he, he was um, part of a, not part, but his partner was kind of in one of these ge- Berlin punk bands, beginning with letter M chord. Oh, God, it was... Um, but they were kind of famous at the time in the sort of the mid-80s. I didn't know if you ever came across Stumble Them. They would have been part of that kind of same scene, I believe. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny you should mention that, because I also, um, do you know a guy called John Gosling, um, also known as Mekon?
0: Oh yes,
1: I mean he's a really, really old friend of mine. Um,
0: did he work with called... Did he work with the rap artist Roxanne Chanté? Uh,
1: maybe I, I, I might be know, getting right? I might
0: be getting this confused, but I do remember a guy called Meekon who did some early hip hop. But that might be a completely different person. We could be getting yeah. more, our wives. I mean, he,
1: he worked uh, he worked together um, with a guy called Mark Rutherford for years and um they did the first um goldie uh track metalheads right um and john was in psychic tv originally when i first met him
0: okay yes did you ever come like across him. alex ferguson who was in psychic tv and
1: no i, I never met i never met him
0: yeah
1: but, I started working with John again um, last year. I mean, it was, last year was really strange. I had contact with so many people that I've worked with years and years and years ago. And um, it's been great. I've had so much fun working with these people again.
0: Yes. Is, is it, well, it's kind of interesting because I don't know if you came across this band in AM 79 called Rima Rima, but there was a band that featured people like Marco Peroni and uh, Gary Asquith and Dorothy Max Pryor and various other people who, were, who went on to, I think, Wolfgang Press and people like that and Mass. But there's been a film that has just been made about that particular, they only put out one EP, but um, there's a, someone's made a film about them because they were quite interesting Yeah,
1: important. Anya from uh, Expo Deutschland, she, she wrote to me a couple of weeks ago and told about it, I never knew they they actually existed to tell you the truth. But once again, um, coincidence because John Gosling he did a remix, uh, I think for the film of one of their tracks,
0: right? Uh, that's and interesting.
1: We, we just finished an album for this young, um, Hungarian, uh, no Romanian lady, I think she's in her mid 20s um called jizz and basically she's um spoken word poet if you like oh. and it's an it's really great the album it's um um she also plays sax she only started playing two years ago and she's um the most incredible saxophone player unbelievable <laughs> i couldn't believe it when john told me she'd only been playing for two years um I'll talk to to John and see if I can also send you a track from what we've done. It's not released yet, but I think there's a good chance that I could send you send you something.
0: Yeah, oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, John Gosling is the guy I think who did work with Roxy Shanti. I really like this hip-hop artist from 1985. She did a song called "Beat um, Bite This," and John Peel used to play it. So I think that I was just kind of looking, actually, if that was that was uh, Mekon featuring Roxanne Chante What's going yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, that's it. In- so did you? God, you've done a lot, haven't you? Um, did you then build a studio oh, for yourself, yeah. or have
1: you? Yes, yeah, oh, so I built I built a studio in Belgium um, in the early nineties, and it's. Still, one of the most amazing studios on the planet. Um, it's, it was in. We had an old uh, hat factory. Um, the recording room had three thousand cubic meter recording space, so it was one of the biggest uh, recording rooms anywhere. And um, I had a Belgian partner, and after two years, I realised that. It, it wasn't working out. I was doing all the work in the studio. I was getting all the work in for the studio. And then I suddenly thought, Well, the only time I was employed, uh it felt like I was working for him. Um and in the end I said, No, I'm on out of this and it took I don't know, about five years of legal hassle to get out of the whole thing. And I mean the studio it was it was it was an amazing space and stuff. And the day that, I remember the day that I signed the the, the 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 papers to get out of the studio, I was doing my last album there. I think it was with FMI night with Mufti from Neuer Barton. And um And I looked from this wonderful recording room into this, uh, from the control room into this wonderful recording room. And I thought, it's just a fucking studio. Um, (laughs) There's no point in, you know, in getting down about it. And um, I got out of the studio and then I planned to build, uh, to move to France. And I went down with my wife and we were looking for spaces, old chateaus and stuff. Um, to build a residential studio down there. But after spending, I don't know, two weeks, um, we realised that it wasn't... In the people in the south of France, some of them are really, really strange, as you know, like there's a lot of um, right-wing people down there. And we, we had one really horrible experience um, in a place called Nîmes when we were staying in a hotel and there was an american guy staying there and he'd been there for months because he was he was from uh, california and he was doing something with the vineyards there like teaching him the, the some of the american ways to make wine and stuff and he used to go to this bar every night and um got on really well with the people, and the night that we were staying at the hotel, he came out of the bar, and then five or six people came out after him and beat the shit out of him. And he came into the um, hotel completely bloodied and everything, and it was really clear for us then that that wasn't the place where we wanted to be and stuff.
0: No. cheesy crazy, no. Yeah. No, 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 crikey. I mean, it's not on quite the same level, but we had, you know, one of those experiences. We had a nice house, but a horrendous neighbour, and it was like the only thing was to move because they weren't going to change, and... um where you had to take because it was just it just put you on edge all the time, which <laughs> was just horrible, yep. you know. So, um, yeah. you learn you learned to quickly think, let go, and think it's great. But you know, it's as you said, it's just it's just a studio, it's just a house, you know. Exactly, yeah. You know, and uh, yeah. So then, when do you, where did you go after then?
1: Um, well, we, we carried on with our journey. A friend of mine had just moved to Barcelona, um, a Dutch guy from Maastricht, who had a studio there. That I used to work at quite a lot. And so we went down to Barcelona to see Ed, and um, my wife fell in love with the town, and we ended up buying an apartment there. And um, the plan was to find uh, property outside Barcelona to to build a studio. And we found an object um, near Figueres, which is north of Barcelona and um, went to the estate agent, and it was quite a drive from the estate agent to the house, and I explained to her what I wanted to do um, to make sure that the space could be uh, usable as a studio. And her son was working um, in the office that day, and he said, oh, um, there's a really good new studio that's been built... um, close to Figueres on the way to the house that you want to see. And it, there was something on, like, the local te- television um about the studio. And so on the way to check this house out, we stopped at the, the studio called Musicland. And it was purpose-built, the studio, so they erected the building and um still one of my favourite studios anywhere on, on the, on, in the world. Um and so we started looking for uh i thought well i can use this place it's got everything that i want they've got two um mixing desks in the studio one is a solid state logic and the other one is a neve from 1965. Mm. i don't know if that means anything to you
0: <laughs> no not a lot. <laughs>
1: okay so absolutely classic mixing desks and stuff and um, wonderful atmosphere great monitoring in the studio so I started doing a lot of stuff there and then um, we were we, we were living in Belgium at that time um, Belgium and Barcelona and so we were going to sell um, a house in Belgium and move down to Barcelona completely and then my wife's Uh, Grandfather died and the grandmother was, um, she didn't have any other living relatives apart from my wife. So we decided um, to get rid of Barcelona and we moved back to Germany to be close to her. And that was in, let me think, that was like in the, probably end of the 90s. Right. Yeah.
0: God damn, that was yeah. uh, that was quite that's quite a lot of trend. It's a lot of manoeuvring you have to do. I mean, I guess I guess you you learn to live uh, to move quite lightly at this stage.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've always, you know, um, we we've moved within Germany since we came back to Germany, and I've always thought like life is a journey for me. And um, my wife, she passed away with cancer uh, five years ago. And I thought to myself, well, for me, the journey's not over. Um, I want to move to another country, learn another language properly, experience a different culture and stuff. So as soon as my daughter will be finished at school in uh, three years, she would have done her A-levels. And I'm planning to move to Fuerteventura. Excellent. In the Canary Islands, yeah. Because these days it doesn't matter where you live, basically. You know, if you've got your your workspace at home. I'd say that today uh, 70% of the stuff that I do is mixing and mastering. And if there's a whole production to do, um, I always have to go somewhere, you know, to leave home to do it. So yeah. If I have to come back from First Ventura to Northern Europe, it's absolutely no problem.
0: God damn. Yeah. Blimey, that's that's amazing. I think, is it Youth? I think he's got a place in the south of somewhere. I seem seem to see pictures of him sort of recording members of various bands at the moment. So, um, is that Youth, youth? yeah. Right. Um Yeah. But somewhere south and warm. He's often got shorts on and looks quite yes. sort of, you know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah. a lot of chest. So um,
1: I mean, I, I don't know if you know Puerto Ventura, but it's a bit like Mars. It's all like uh, volcanoes and um, it like sand deserts and stuff, just like in the Sahara and stuff.
0: Yes. I know Lanzarote's um, like that, isn't it? So, um, yeah. That's, yeah that's a similar place actually so yeah right. so so what do you, what are you working on at the moment?
1: Um, I'm working on a it's a, a live concert um I did this, an album about three years ago with some basically they were they're just like jazz musicians and they got in touch with me and said that they wanted to make a prog rock album. And um, I thought, well, I've made a prog rock album. Maybe I should try it. <laughs> and yes. um, absolutely incredible music- musicians. The drummer is a guy called Vim de Fries And he's supposed to be the best jazz drummer in Europe and stuff. And um, it was a three-piece setup, And they wanted to do a new interpretation of pictures at an exhibition from ELP.
0: Yes, classic.
1: Yeah so um Marcus and Vim the the piano player and drummer they did this um they wrote this thing for a modern dance company um it's about 2 hours long the whole thing and it's like a continuous piece of music um which is based is based on Beethoven um and I started working on it uh, last spring. But like I said, it's two hours long. And um, the they said, uh, there's no rush. Um, nobody's waiting for this album. Take your time. Uh, so I, I worked on it on and off for uh, two or three months. And I've still got to finish that. And that's the next thing that I'm going to do.
0: Fantastic, that is so yeah. cool, that's so cool. You know, just because I was just getting a little bit confused earlier, did you say you did a, a song with, was it Mark, um, Holiday in Beirut? Was that one of the...
1: Holiday in Beirut, that was with Abbots yeah, with Mark Chung from Noir Barton.
0: Right. Mark Chung.
1: And Mufti, the um, F.M. Einheit, um, one of the he was one of the drummers in Noabouton. In
0: right. God I know. Yeah,
1: he, Mark, I mean, Mark left um at one point. I mean there was it was the vibe with Neubauten at that time was absolutely terrible. I think we talked. yeah, that was late the early nineties. And in the end Mark left um the band and um and then the next album, um Halfway through the album, Mufti left, and that was the album called Ender Right. Right. Um, and we recorded a lot of it at Connie Plank's studio, um, and that was at the time that my studio was being built in Belgium, and we finished it off in my studio in Belgium. And in the end, there was, there was just Blixer and Andrew and Alex, Mufti and Mark had left, and for me, um, it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't about it anymore. Um, they'd always, like, pushed everything to the limit and um, been really extreme. And Blixer, got uh, this time, he wanted to make music, um, songs and stuff like that. So I mean, I finished that album off, and it's a good album. But they went in a direction that um, didn't really, you know, compared with the the crazy stuff we did in the in the eighties and stuff. Um, you couldn't really compare it.
0: Yes, goddamn, that's such a that's such a story, isn't it? I mean, if you could have just whispered something to your like sixteen year old self, starting out in this kind of interest and in industry, is there anything in particular that you would have um, advised and or, or sort of nudged or pointed, e- you know, I mean, even if you ignored it? I mean, I know most people say, oh, I wouldn't change a thing, but I just wonder if there was anything in particular you would have thought, yeah, that would have been worth focusing on? Or, Yeah, I mean, you
1: never know, you never know, what, you know, what's, what's around the corner and stuff. Um, I often wondered what it would have been like if I'd stayed in London and not come to Germany, you know that was if um, my life would have been completely different. Um, one thing I really regret was when I was making that first about an album, there was one telephone in the, in the studio and it was like three uh, stories below. And um, somebody came up one day and said, oh, there's someone on the phone for you from England. But by the time I got downstairs, um, the line was dead and stuff. And then I went back to London a couple of months later and went down to Brittany Row to visit the, the people down there and stuff. And the studio manager, Nick Griffiths, he said, where have you been? Uh New Order were looking for you for about three months because they wanted to make um, Blue Monday with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that's the way it goes.
0: Yes, so close. That was... Uh- yeah. Never mind, but then, yeah, I know, like you said, but your 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 adventures through Europe are just extraordinary.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've had a great life, and I know that I'm really, really lucky to have uh, you know to like your hobby is your is
0: your it's your job. Yeah, absolutely. That's and that, dear listener, is a um, clean edit. Indeed. Anyway, a massive thank you to John Caffrey for giving me the uh, time for that interview. If you want to go to his website, it's um, all one word, uh, John Caffrey, which is C A F F E R Y dot. Then it's just D-E. There you go. And uh, yes, you'll find out more about various other bands he's been working on. Um, This has been the C86 Show. David Eastall, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.